I always love to point out that uh, you noticed, I hope, that Jimmy wrote that song. Uh, that's amazing to me. Um, one other thing before we turn to our text. Um, as some of you know, uh, I just returned from a week in India. And um, if you'd like to hear just a snippet about that, Come be with us Wednesday night. The, the, the entire night's not going to be de- devoted to India. Uh, we're not going to show slides. Uh, we need to get on with the study of the book of Galatians. But, um, you know, a few minutes, I, I want to tell you about what went on and some of the things that I think you, that you might find of some interest. So <clears throat> come be with us Wednesday night as we um, chat over just a little bit about what's happening in India. Now, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to um, John 14 and let me read you my text. Uh, we, um, I said to you a couple, three weeks ago that we're going to move on, and, and here we go. We're just plowing right through John 14. I want to begin reading at verse 18. You follow as I read. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And he will come to him and make, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God. This endures forever and forever and forever. Don't don't forget that. I've been eager to get to this sentence in verse 18. We've, um, we've read it uh, on some previous Sundays, but I've, I've not been able to address it, and, I, and I'm, I've been eager to focus your attention on it. Um, when you read it at first, it seems like it's almost out of place. It, it, it's not, it, it just doesn't fit, does it? Uh, he's talked about obedience in, in verse 15 and made that emphasis about uh, no, no such thing as an authentic believer who doesn't obey. And then he introduces us to the Holy Spirit, which we've been looking at for two or three weeks. And then, then you get this statement. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. Where does that fit in the whole uh, flow of this, this discussion? And interestingly, he doesn't simply say, I will not leave you alone. He says, I will not leave you orphans. A much more tender word than just alone. And, and after this very tender statement that he makes there in verse 18, he proceeds to give us several sentences that are just 
that, that are just downright riddle-like. They're, they're very complex. I mean, whoever said that the gospel of John was, was simple? Have you ever done this? I mean, I, I, I've done it. You know, you, 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 you see somebody come to Christ for the first time, they're new Christians, and you say, well, here's what you need to do. You need to read the gospel of John because the gospel of John is, is oh so simple. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this isn't simple. This is very complex, I would suggest to you. And I wonder, that as I read it, were you kind of confused with all this that was going on there? And, and um, you know, when, when I was grappling with this text several weeks ago, the, the thought that came to my mind was a, um, was a Rubik's Cube. You know, I, I kind of like the Rubik's Cube because it was invented by a Hungarian, a, a, an architect, uh, Erno Rubik. And did you know, I mean, I had this thought, and I, so I just kind of chased it down a little bit um, um, on Google. And Did you know that the Rubik's Cube has 43 quintillion combinations? The 43 quintillion that is a 43 with 15 zeros after it, I think, 15. Who gives, you know, a, a zero here or there? Um, 43 quintillion combinations. They even have conferences, um, magic cube conferences, they call them. The first one was held in 1982 in, uh, of course, Budapest, since a Hungarian invented it. And they had these competitions at these conferences as to who can do it the fastest. The world record holder for unraveling the Rubik's Cube, get this, is 5.55 seconds. He did the thing in five in six seconds. The, the world record for doing it with one hand really gets long. 9.03 seconds with one hand. The world record... <laughs> I really got into this. The, the, the world record for doing it with your feet <laughs> was 27.93 seconds. And then the world record for doing it blindfolded was 23.8 seconds, less than doing it with your feet. See, that's my problem. I've been trying to do it with my feet. And, and I need to do it blindfold. I mean, have you, ever, have you ever done that little thing? I mean, I, I can't last over eight or ten minutes because it just gets so frustrating. I throw the thing away. It's, it was bought by Mattel, I think, years ago. Um, I think it was one of the big toy factories or toy companies. And it is the largest selling toy in the history of toydom. Over 350 million of those things have been sold. It has 43 quintillion possible combinations. Um, I haven't spent long hours on it, but I've spent some. I've spent, you know, I added all up a day or two on the thing. I, I say all of that, ladies and gentlemen, to say this. Our text does not contain 43 quintillion possibilities. But I've spent a few days on it too. And, and, and I'm not sure that I have it fully figured out. 
But, but I can tell you this much about it, ladies and gentlemen. The content of these, uh, these few verses is utterly stupefying. And there, there are some promises that are contained in it that are, that are staggering, utterly transcending my, my ability to explain all this. But I'm going to try. And I want you to look with me at the text under four different headings. And here's the first one. I want you to notice from this, this text the centrality of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. The centrality of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. Let me show you. Why does Jesus say this? What is it that motivated him to say in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us what his motive is, but it, it, it's fairly clear, I think, what the motive is all about. Um, um, you know, with Jesus gone, these guys, 11 of them, J- Judas is gone, but they faced life now alone. And, and they're scared spitless. They're like, they're like children thinking that their parents are going to desert them. You know, folks, I, I did singles for several years back in the 80s. And, and a lot of singles will tell you that almost any condition is better than being alone. These guys are looking at, at an, an, a future without Jesus in it. A bunch of children following daddy and daddy's about to leave and we're scared. And so Jesus says to him, I'm not going to leave you orphans. Um, I, I will come to you. He makes them a promise that he's not going to leave them alone. And how is he going to fulfill that promise? He's going to fulfill that promise by the coming of the Holy Spirit. He promises, I will come to you. How? How are you going to come to us, Jesus? By the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It is now the Holy Spirit who will be the agent of our ongoing fellowship with Jesus Christ. Gang, I told you in those last three sermons that, that this section is all about the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that. It is the Holy Spirit who's going to be the, 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 the successor to Christ to maintain this fellowship that we have with him. And not only that, when he arrives, he's going to teach us some pretty significant stuff. For instance, verse 20. Um, and that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. One of the first things that the Holy Spirit is going to, to explain to us, who is going, the, one of the first things that he's going to tell us is about the union, first of all, of the, of the Son and the Father. It, it, it's by the Holy Spirit that the Father and the Son are going to take up residence within the believer. Look at verse 23. Um, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Who's that we? 
Well, that's the, the, the father and the son, and they're going to take up residence within the believer via the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Part of the way, guys, that, that Christ prepares us to manage life, to, to manage a very complex life in his absence, is by making sure that you and I understand of the centrality of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer. He is Christ's successor, and he is the Father and the Son's provision to help us address all of our fears. Have you ever said to your husband or your wife or your secretary, for that matter, have you ever said, well, well honey, I mean, uh, you thought of everything. Well, so did they. So did the Father and the Son think of everything. Listen, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my spirit to you. I will come to you, and I will come to you in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that I, that I think is taught in this text. Here's the second thing. I want you to notice in it that there is a distinction being made between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's in verse 19. He says, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will also live. Gang, there is a very noticeable line of demarcation between God's people and those who are not. He says, in a little while, in a matter of hours now, this is the night before the, the cross, in just a little while, the world is not going to see me anymore. But you will see me. That's what he says. And there you have, ladies and gentlemen, the line of demarcation between a Christian and a non-Christian. His people see him. And they see him in numerous ways. They see him as he steers them through naughty circumstances in their lives. They, they, they see him as he changes us. They, they see him as he, as he gives to us. They see him as he rebukes us. You know, guys, every, um, every Sunday morning before I get in here, I meet with Bob Wood and we pray together from, from about 9 to 9.20. Um, actually, we chat a bit and then we pray. But this morning, Bob Wood was praying and, and, and he said, Lord, I want to thank you for your sovereign control over every detail of my life. Do you know what that is, ladies and gentlemen? That's a set of eyes that see him. The world doesn't see him. We see him. It's a sight that has been made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It started in regeneration... And since that day, we have continued to see him more and more aided, even authored 
mediated by God the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm I'm not saying all of us, but many of us. Many of us remember the day when, when, we, um, when we saw with only physical eyes, like, like the world sees. And then there came a moment, a moment when we were enabled to see. We saw Jesus Christ as the only solution that existed for our sin. We saw him as the only savior. We we saw him as the only substitute for sin. We saw him as the only hope that we had of our forgiveness, of forgiveness. Guys, no one ever truly sees that until their eyes have been opened by God the Holy Spirit. Because you see, one of the enormous differences between a believer and an unbeliever is that we see him. And the only way that we see him is because God the Holy Spirit has given us, through the rebirth, has given us eyes to see. Tell me, my friend, has God opened your eyes to see him? Or do you chalk up all these things that happen in your life to coincidence? Or do you define all the things that go on as the result of human ingenuity and human genius? Or do you see him? Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the distinctive quality in this text that separates Christians from non-Christians. Do you see him? Because um, Jesus says in verse 19, in a little while the world's not going to see me because I'm going to be dead and gone. But no matter, you who are mine, You will see me. Wow. Do you see him? Can your soul answer yes? Yes, I see him. Maybe not as much as I want, but I see him. I see him alive and at work in my life. Here's the third thing that I want you to see in this text, and here's the thing that I would love to be able to communicate well. It starts in verse 19, the the last part of 19, the, uh, the, the B portion of verse 19, into verse 20. Look at it, middle of verse 19. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The text says, because I live, you will live also. Our eternal fortunes, mine and Jesus's, stand or fall together. Because I live, you will live also. We stand or fall together, ladies and gentlemen. He is not saying, because I exist, you exist. That would be nonsensical. He lives eternally, 
And so do I. Because, you see, I am in union with him. That's what he says in verse 20. You will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That is union, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ is the source of eternal life for his people, now and everlastingly. You know, one of the, one of the mistakes, guys, that we make is that to gain a sense of assurance of our own souls, we begin to examine our own performance. Well, did I, am, I, am I faithful in my church attendance? Do I give money to my church? Do I, help, do I help little old ladies across the street? I mean, how am I doing? Let me tell you something. You're doing horribly. Just like me. There's not a thing that you've ever done, not one thing that wasn't tainted with sin. Not a thing. The best thing you've ever done. Augustine used to say that our, that our most righteous works are splendid sins. And so we look at our performance and we find out, mm, it's not so good. And then we begin to fret and stew and stir over our soul's safety. Ladies and gentlemen, my soul's safety is not the result of my performance. My performance stinks. The reason that I'm safe is because I am in him and he is in me. There is a union between Christ and his people and the law, the law with all of its scary demands. Thou shalt not commit adultery, says the law. And then Jesus says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of violating that law. So tell me, my brothers, How you doing with the law? The law with all of its condemnations will never, will never be able to kill me because it has been satisfied. That law has been satisfied by Christ and I. I am in union with the one who satisfied the law for me. And not only that, the text says, verse 20, um, I am in my father. Okay, okay. The son is in the father. And I am in the Son. That's what I call eternal safety. 
is that life implanted by God, is it in you? I didn't say, is it perfectly in you? I didn't say, are you living the, uh, the uh, wonderfully uh, saint-like, pious life? I didn't say that. Do you sense something in you that is alive and is there only because God brought it to life? Can your soul answer in reply, as weak as it is, it's in there. Guys, guys, look at this Rubik's Cube text of ours. Look at this verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. The Father loves the Christian because the Christian loves Jesus, and Jesus loves the Christian because the Father loves him. <laughs> it's words like that that got him killed. And it's words like that that make it, make it like a Rubik cube. And we will come to make our home in him. You know, when I was in India and in teaching these pastors, um, I made a big to-do about pronouns. You know what pronouns are? I mean, we're, we know the English language. you got pronouns, and all pronouns have antecedents, pronouns that refer back to nouns, you know. Well, and we will come and make our home with him. Look at those pronouns. We. Who's that we? That's the Father and the Son. And we're going to make our, who does that refer to? The Father and the Son. In him, we're going to make our home in him. <laughs> These are stupefying claims, ladies and gentlemen. The Father and the Son make their residence in the soul of the believer, in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you get all that? Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is what makes for the Christian's everlasting safety. One more point, and then I'll, I'll quit. Here's the fourth heading that I want you to see contained in this text. It is the necessity of obedient love. Again. Now, I want you to notice, guys, in verse 22, Judas asks a question. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed him. This is another Judas. There was a couple of Judases in the 12. Well, this is the other Judas. And Judas asked, Lord, um, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And then Jesus replies, beginning in verse 23. And this, ladies and gentlemen, in English literature is something called a non sequitur. He asks a question, and the answer doesn't flow out of the question. People do that on, on CNN News all the time. The, the commentator asks a question, and then they just, 
and they never answer it. Well, in a roundabout way, Jesus answers Judas' question. But Judas is asking, how will you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to do that? And Jesus' reply is, is found in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My wife got on to me a couple of weeks ago. She does that often. But she says, you know, like Brian Williams got fired because he misrepresented the truth, you know. And, um, and I said on, a, on an occasion, I said that I had been in school for 29 years. That was a piece of hyperbole. It's 23, 24 years. We, 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 we measured them all up while we were in Rome. Just so that I could tell you that I wasn't pulling a Brian Williams. Okay? So I have not, I, I have been, been in school for 29 years. I've been in school for 24 years. And let me ask, does it make a difference? <laughs> it, it, it does to my wife. Um, she thinks you're going to find out that I've only been in school for 24 years and you're going to fire me because I misrepresented the truth up here. And I, anyway, only 24 years. Okay. Everybody got that. Here's my point. None of those 24 years are needed to understand those words. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Gang, all of this process, these, these grand truths that are being discussed here, they all become clearer to the person who keeps his word. Those who see him, for instance, are the ones who are obedient to him. We are a people whose eyes have been opened sovereignly by God the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus in a way that we never saw him before. And once we see that our sin is, is, is satisfied by Christ's work, then we come to this Savior of ours and we say, Jesus, what is it that you would have me to do now? Now that I belong to you, what is it that you want from me? Not... Hey, I want to belong to you, so tell me what I can do to get to belong to you. No, no. Now that I belong to you, what would you have me do for you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, it is one thing for Jesus to say that once. He said it in verse 15. We went over it five weeks ago. If you love me, keep my commandments. No such thing as an authentic believer who does not obey. He, it's one thing for him to say that once. But then he says it twice in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. It is one thing for Jesus to say that once. It is one thing for Jesus to say that twice. Now he says it a third time in verse 24. 
He who does not love me does not keep my words. And in verse 23, if you do love me, you will keep my words. We show our love for him by keeping his word. To reject his words and then replace his words with my words, that just means that I don't love him. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I don't know how well you know me, um, but if you do know me, you probably don't like me, but uh, um, the better you get to know me, the worse you like me. Um, but um, I don't think anybody, or if you've never heard, I'm not a homophobe. I'm not a homophobe. I am not one who is on some kind of crusade to overturn abortion. I think abortion's murder. And I think we should do things to, do, to, 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 to mitigate it in any way that we can. But ladies and gentlemen, the thing that bothers me more than either one of those issues is the people who are trying to find justification for those two great evils And trying to find that justification from the words of Jesus Christ. I don't get to define those terms on my own, ladies and gentlemen. And neither do you. I come... And I listen to his words. I try to live, I try to understand them. And then I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, try to go out and live them. I am not the definer of right and wrong. You know, guys, this is probably gonna get me in trouble, but this is this is one of the ways that I think the Democrats have it right, and you Republicans, or I guess I should say we Republicans, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Republican, and I'm not a Democrat. Jesus Christ is far more liberal than the Democrats, and he's far more conservative than the Republicans. I'm not either one of those. But I'm telling you, here's one way where the Democrats, I think, get it right, because at least they are they are trying to bring attention to the need for social justice. And we Republicans, you know what, where our big, uh, our big cry is, we want economic advancement. And everybody in this room knows what we mean when we say economic advancement. We want more money. And to hell with the poor. I don't get a chance to do that, ladies and gentlemen. I don't have a right to do that. I've got to come figure out what, what this Savior of mine says. And then I've got to go try to do it. So, um, who is he that the Father and the Son look upon with delight? 
It's the one who keeps his words. To whom is the son going to manifest himself? The one who keeps his words. And who is he to whom the father and the son come and take up their residence within them forever? It's the one who keeps his words. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see from all that the very close, intimate connection between holy living and the smile of God's face? It is woven into the warp and the woof of this text. Now let me be very clear. My obedience does not produce my union with Christ. My obedience does not produce my relationship with God. My obedience simply illustrates that I have a relationship with God. And apparently, that can't be said often enough. Because Jesus Christ says it three times in the scope of ten verses. I don't have a Rubik's Cube. but I do have one of these. And what I'm going to try to do is by the aid of the Holy Ghost, I'm going to try to understand it. And then by the power enabling me by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to try to live it. Come to think of it, that's not so complex after all. Our Father, would you indeed uh, stir your people to a greater interest in and love for your word? Would you, um, would you turn us into a people who are not, are not known for their scholasticism, but people who are known for their interest in, their eagerness for, their love of, the words of Jesus Christ, and then by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, give us, give us what's needed to go out and live it in a way that would reflect our love for this Savior. And we ask all of this, of course, in Jesus' name.